the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Um, relief. The following program is sponsored by Reaching Hearts Ministries. Welcome back to Reaching Your Heart. Pastor Michael Oxenchenko concludes Force Field of Faith today, part number 19 of the Genesis series. If you have any questions about this message, you can always dial our phone number. It's 877-788-5371, 877-788-5371. We look forward to hearing from you. I'll be back with some other very important information after our broadcast today, so please stay with me for just a few seconds afterwards. Here he is, Pastor Michael Oxentenko, with part number 19, the conclusion of Force Field Faith. Today's Reaching Your Heart. Up to this point, Abram has been a passive man. You look at Genesis 12, and he was reluctant to oppose Pharaoh when he seized his wife. He kind of took it in a laid-back kind of way. When pushed to controversy with his nephew Lot, he let his nephew have his way in chapter 13. He gave him the best of the land, didn't fight over the land. But the crises of chapter 14 changes everything in Abram's life forever. Let's look at verse 1 in Genesis 14. Genesis 14, 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Eliaser, Kedorlamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. Verse 2, these kings made war with Barah, king of Sodom, Bershah, king of Gomorrah, Shanab, king of Adma, Shemember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. What a line we have here in the Bible. We have four kings in the north, four kings in the south. Now, the invasion from the north is led by four kings, which represent four dimensions of the land of Babylon, the land of the east, that Abram left behind. And the names of these kings in the Hebrew tongue and in ancient Semitic tongues are very important to understand their character. Let's look at them. The first king claimed to be the wise one. Amraphel, king of Shinar, means sayer of darkness from the two rivers. That sounds kind of neat, doesn't it? Sayer of darkness from the two rivers. The name most likely implies that Amraphel was the wise one who lived in the land of the two rivers, in the land of Babylon. He could find out what is in the darkness, the deep things, and reveal it. So they all looked up to him as the wisest of the four. The second king claimed to be the ferocious one, Ariok, king of Eliaser. Ariok means lion-like, and Eliaser means God is a chastener. Of course, it is implied that Arioch is the lion that God uses to defeat evil kings like the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. He is the righteous right on the move for the cause of God. Number three, the third king claimed to be the fertile one. Kedar Laomer, king of Elam, means a handful of sheaves, the king of eternity. Whatever he does turns to gold. Whatever he does becomes plentiful. He is the one who grows and prospers, fertile in the land. And the fourth king claimed to be the great one, the superior son. Titled king of Goan means the great son, the king of the nations. There's almost something messianic in that, isn't there? I am the son of sons, the great one. 
And what we have here is the fantastic four. The king of wisdom, ferocity, fertility, and greatness. The fantastic four were on the move from the north coming into the realm of the promised land. The text says they set their sights against the four kings of the valley of Jordan. Now, by contrast, these kings in the south are not as with it as the kings in the north. They are the not-so-fantastic four. They are four, nonetheless. Now, let's look at their names. King number one. Barad, king of Sodom, means in Hebrew, in wickedness, king of burning. How do you like that? He's the king that burns in the end. Now imagine electing someone like that to be your king. Going to his office and saying, by the way, I need a conference with in wickedness. I need to get counsel. I need some laws passed. I mean, that's the name of the king. King number two, Bershad, king of Gomorrah, means in rebellion, king of submersion. His kingdom sinks in a well of fire as it goes into the earth in some kind of earthquake. He's the king that sinks in the end. But imagine having a king called in rebellion. Okay, king number three, Shanab, king of Adma, means sin. The moon god is his father. He's the king who never trusts God as his father. He found a father in a foreign kind of god from God. King number four, Shemember, means my name is mighty. He was king of Zeboam, which means glories. And the king of Bala, which means swallowed up. That is Zoar, which means little or insignificant. Now put it all together. Here's what you have. My name is mighty. Always means you are king of glories that is swallowed up. And in the end, your kingdom is really like Zoar, which means you're nothing. You're insignificant. So even though he thought he was something, he's really the king of an insignificant, nothing kind of kingdom. The Fantastic Four come from the north to engage the not-so-fantastic four from the south. And that is the tension that we find Abraham in. Now, why is this significant? In the book of Daniel, chapter 11, we have the king of the north. And we have the king of the south. And what we find in the prophecy of Daniel is that God's people are always in the middle. They at times align with one or the other, but they're always in the middle, caught between these two forces, the north and the south. And according to the book of Revelation, that tension exists all the way until we get to the end of time and when the king of the north will deal a deathly blow to the king of the south and gain final global dominion before the coming of the Lord. So they represent kingdom principles at work in history until the end. So the Fantastic Four come from the north. They obviously have the upper hand. Now the Fantastic Four sweep down from the north and engage the not-so-Fantastic Four in battle, and they begin to fall in the tar pits as they run like mad for safety. Look at verse 10. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell into them, and the rest fled to the mountain. So the enemy took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the sons of Abram's brother, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and departed. When the battle ends, the not-so-fantastic four kings of the south are hiding in the mountains, and Abram's nephew Lot is a hostage in the hands of the terrorists who have broken in and taken him away. I mean, this is like stuff we're seeing today. This is like a Osama bin Laden kind of activity in play here. To make matters worse, the terrorists are on their way home praising the righteous achievements of the fantastic four who have defeated these kings of the south. In verse 13, a man escapes from the camp and comes to Abram. He says, ah, they took Lot. They took everything we had. And I imagine he's sobbing the storyline. Oh, oh, you know, I don't do that. Abram says, well, tell me what's going on. But he gets the essence of the story. Lot, your nephew, 
his family kidnapped by the terrorists. Now remember that God had promised Abram just after Lot left for the Jordan Valley that he would give him that valley along with everything else to the north, the south, the east, and the west. With Lot gone, wouldn't it look like the Lord had answered his prayer? Yes or no? Suddenly the Lord has spoken. Great and marvelous are his ways. Now, this is the first test of Abram's life. It looks like the fantastic four have given Abram everything he wants. Only one problem. Lot is his kinsman. And Abram will not win if it means Lot must lose. He will not win that way. Abram was a man who cared more about his brother than his brother's goods. Abram was a man who cared more about his kin than a good win. Abram was a man who measured greatness by kindness instead of conquest. And for the first time in Abram's life, he had to fight for kindness to pull his nephew Lot to safety. He had to take a stand in a way that was foreign to his temperament and his nature because suddenly kindness is on the line and kindness is put to the test. He had to stand up for the weak or he would never be able to stand at all as a man again for the rest of his life. He is not a young man. He is a man advanced in years. And the call is clear, stand up for the weak. And he does. Dear heart, there comes a time in every Christian's life when kindness must be measured by strength of character that meets the bully head on so the weak can be set free. And maybe God has called you to stand up for someone who can't stand up for themselves. That was given to Abram. The first test, so mild and meek Abram becomes a man of war, reluctantly so. Genesis 14, 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, it's clear. The Bible says there were 318 trained men. The Hebrew word trained is the same word we have for Enoch, Hanok. And it means to dedicate. These were trained men in the sense that they were dedicated men. What made them fit for service in the call of Abram? It wasn't because they were men of war. It's because they were dedicated to God and God could fill them with power and use them for his cause. They were dedicated to Abram and Abram was a man of faith. And so with 300 dedicated men, the fantastic four were in trouble. God doesn't need numbers to win your heart. He doesn't need the biggest armies, the biggest churches, the most impressive buildings or the vast array of resources to the eye. All God needs are dedicated men and women who are willing, even if they are a small group, to do the will of God, and then God will act. Look at verse 15. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and routed them and pursued them to Habah, north of Damascus. So Abram gathers the goods and gives a tithe of everything to Melchizedek, king of Salem. Imagine these 318 dedicated men just in hot pursuit of the fantastic four, routing them, taking everything back, defeating the mightiest kings in the world. It's an amazing thing. So Abram, at the end of the story, gives a tithe to Melchizedek, king of Salem. He was priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and Salem is the word shalom, which means peace. Abram recognized that greatness is not found in war. It is found in making peace. And so he gave a tithe to the king of peace. Test number two comes to Abram in verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Now suddenly it looks like the promise of God has come to Abram through the kings of Sodom. If it's not the king of the north, the kings of the north will do it. The kings of the south will give him the promise. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, 
maker of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. He's saying to them, listen, I'm not going to be bought off. I didn't do this so I could get wealthy rescuing you. I did this because kindness is more important than conquest because God has called me to take a stand for the underdog. And even though you're a rotten kind of guys, you're the underdog and I stood up for you. With the victory behind him, Abram realizes that the truth about God is on trial here. What kind of witness will he give for God to these evil, wicked kings of the south? Will he show that it was for his own reasons he did this? Or will he show that he serves a God who is worth following regardless of the outcome? Abram doesn't need the goodies of Sodom, the loot of the fantastic four, or anything else to be important and significant in God's plan. Abram followed God because God is worth following Even if you don't get one nickel for following God, follow God because the riches are in God himself. The man or woman who follows God to get rich is not following God. You know, these prosperity preachers that get on the television set and tell the people of this country that if they're a Christian, they're going to suddenly do well. They are a denial of the martyrs of the last 2,000 years who lost everything and found the riches of God by faith burning at the stake, or on the run in a dungeon, or hiding in some forest. They just simply don't fit into the prosperity preaching of our time. And dear heart, God may be calling you at the end of time to have a fate like theirs. Riches is found in God and in relationship with Jesus Christ, not in some rich outcome that you've been able to manipulate through your faith. And so he gave up the loot because kindness is more important than conquest. As the thrill of victory wears off, Abram begins to think about what he's just done. What he has just done was dangerous. But now he realizes that he's a political target. Up to this point, he's been a man of peace. But now he has become a man of war. Yes, for the underdog, but nonetheless a man of war. And that means that some would-be terrorist, some kind of fascist foe who wants to make an example of someone could look at him and take him out to make himself great and Abram begins to become very much afraid. He's an old man. He's no longer young. Fear begins to rattle in his arthritic bones for the first time in his hard life, the hard journey. God comes to Abram when Abram is exposed to open danger he cannot control, to a life he cannot manage, to circumstances beyond his grasp to put together. And look at verse 1 of Genesis 15. It's really the peak of this story. After these things, you see, all of what we've read so far is a setup for verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. This is the first time in the Bible that God manifests himself as a shield. You know, there are many metaphors for God in the Hebrew Bible. God is a fortress. God is a rock. God is a flame and fire. God is a river of living water. But here, God is a shield. Dear heart, when faith is on trial, when you have done your best and you can't get through the difficult times, and the armies of evil press about you, when it feels like you will lose because evil has a foothold in your circumstances, when it looks like the arrows of the evil one will pierce your heart and your faith will come tumbling down. The Bible says God is your shield. 
Without reservation, God reaches out to the fearful believer and declares that he will be the protection for that person when things are hard and rough. The word for shield in Hebrew is magain, and it means a round shield or buckler that is held tight with the hand. In his journey from east to west, Abraham has been holding something all right. He has been holding the hand of God. And suddenly, when times are tough, when he feels fear and his hand begins to shake, God comes to him and he directs him to the truth that the hand he holds, the hand he holds is a shield, that God is a shield. When Moses asked to see the glory of God that no man can see and live, he would have been obliterated by the nuclear reaction of God's omnipotent glory. In Exodus 33:22, God promised Moses that he would shield him with his hand. Very clear. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. The hand you hold by faith is more than a hand. It is a shield that will protect you in difficult days. Psalms 18.35 Thou hast given me the shield of thy salvation and thy right hand supported me and thy help made me great. When God's shield is there, it is because you are holding His hand, which is the buckler of your life. And the arrows of evil cannot pierce you because God's hand is swatting them back one after another. It is a force field around you, and evil cannot overcome you. The Hebrew word for shield is magain, and it is derived from the Hebrew verb ganan, which means to cover, to surround, to protect. God has called a shield 15 times in the Old Testament. The word is used actively and passively. Actively describes God as a deliverer and a savior for the assaulted. Passively describes God as a protection and refuge for the weak. It describes every circumstance of trouble you can be in. God is a shield. Just so happens that the word for shield is directly related to the word for garden. Magain means shield. Gan means garden. They both come from the verb ganan, to enclose, to surround, to protect. The Garden of Eden was a place of protection. The Hebrew word garden literally means enclosure. It was an enclosure that was safe with God. It was safe because God was in the garden. In Genesis 3.24, God placed the cherubim with flaming sword at its door to protect it and guard it. When you come into God's garden, there is holy protection around you. Lot chose the valley of the Jordan. It looked like the garden of God, but it really wasn't the garden of God. There was no protection there because God's name was not revered there and God was not there. The ultimate protection in life for you, dear heart, is when you hold on to the hand of God. And when you hold on to the hand of God, God is holding on to you. And you hold in your hand the shield which covers you like a force field. God comes to Abram with the promise of life. I am your shield, your reward is great. Then he takes him outside. He says, Abram, look up at those stars. He says, yeah, I'm not an astronomer. I don't really know what's going on there. He says, Abram, look, and what do you see? Start counting them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I can't do that, Lord. Abram, that's how many children you're going to have, and they're going to shine like the brightness of the firmament, like the stars forever and ever, as Daniel would say. He says, how can that be? Because my heir is Eliezer of Damascus. He says, no, he's not your heir. I will give you a son. And you will be the father of many sons. And no one will be able to count them. And there, in the midst of his fears, overcome, it seems, by the circumstances of his life, he looks into the face of God by faith, and he believes the Lord. 
The Bible says he believed the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abram had force field faith that held on to the hand of God, the shield. Faith that holds on to the hand of God holds the hidden shield of a mighty God. And the heart that believes in God is hid by God, safe and protected by an unseen force that evil cannot pierce. As long as you hold the hand who is the shield, nothing can break through and force you to surrender to evil. Mr. Perez had just come home from a long day of landscaping and cleaning buildings in Florida. I mean, that was his job. He liked it. He did it. He came home. He was tired. He was standing at the door of his van, locking it tight, when he saw a man approach him, and he was intuitive enough to see an evil intent gleaming in his avaricious eyes. He saw it there, and he was scared. And so what did he do? Intuitively, he sensed something was wrong. Without a trace of hesitation, Mr. Perez darted to the door of his house in a mad leap for safety. Before he reached the door, his attacker, a 23-year-old man named Mac, Big Mac attack, caught him and began to tear his clothes off his body and beat him right there on the spot in his own yard. He was clawing through Mr. Perez's clothes to take his wallet, confident that he could commit this crime in broad daylight and no one would stand up to him. No, sir. He was the Big Mac attack against Mr. Perez. All things considered, Mr. Perez was in a whole heap of trouble. I mean, the man was stronger than he was. The man was bigger than he was. He was a seasoned thief. He had used a weapon illegally. I mean, he was a criminal, the kind of person that kills other people. The thief took the wallet and began to run, and that's when Mr. Perez grabbed him by the feet and pulled him down. I mean, something got in this little guy, and he reached out to resist what had happened in his own yard. When he realized what he had done, that by grabbing this guy, now he was in a whole bunch of trouble. He was afraid. So Mr. Perez screamed at the top of his lungs for help. Ah! That's when the tables turned against the thief in favor of Mr. Perez. Mr. Perez's wife, Candelaria, was waiting for her husband to come home when she heard Mr. Perez's cries for help. She was four feet, nine inches tall, and she swung into action like Catwoman with claws ready to scratch. She smacked the thief with a wicked right hook she developed as a child in Guatemala. She grabbed him by the hair and started yanking hair out like she was harvesting beans for the market. The thief punched her in the face, but she kept on pulling his hair out and hitting him back. She then moved in with her right hook and began to pummel the thief in the face many times over. Pop, 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 pop. A crowd gathered around Mrs. Perez, Candelaria. Hit him, Candelaria, hit him, hit him, hit him, they were jeering. She kept on pounding, pop, 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 with her right hook. That's when her 13-year-old daughter, Amelta, moved in with a chair. She seized the chair like the goddess of war, Athena, and she cracked it over the thief's ugly head decisively. Whack! Juan was only 10 years old, but his mother and father had encouraged him to take up baseball. Well, so Juan exchanged that day his bat for a big stick. He began to beat his daddy's attacker senseless. Leave my daddy alone. Whack, whack, whack. Leave my daddy alone. Whack, 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 whack. When the police finally arrived, they found the thief lying face down on the ground, tied up with jump rope, and Mr. Perez sitting on top with a confident smile, telling you, dear heart, you don't have to let evil run over you in life. Mr. Perez was not strong, but he knew how to cry out for help. And when he cried out for help, he had a force field confidence in that family of his. They stuck together like glue, and they fought for him. In fact, his son, Wana, who was calling 911, says, we couldn't let our daddy die in the front yard. We had to do something about this. And they defeated the enemy. 
Dear heart, the hand that holds the hand of God wins in the end. Force field faith holds on to God. One day Jesus is coming. It's very soon. He's going to tie up your enemies that have given you such a hard time seeking God in your life. He's going to tie them up. Those forces that have assaulted you, that have tried to strip you of your faith, He's going to deal with them. He's going to put you on top of the pile with a smile in your face. Mr. Perez got the upper hand because he had force field faith. What is Abram? Abram is the father of the faithful. He became Abraham because he believed God when it seemed like God could not do what he had promised. He believed God in the utmost times of difficulty and God manifested his power first by faith, then by action. Dear heart, if you feel God has let you down, don't feel that way very much longer. Reach out and take God's hand. Hold it tight. God is your shield. When you hold the hand of God, you hold the shield that puts a force field around you. And when God surrounds you, when the angel of the Lord encampeth round about you, no one can harm you. No one can take you away from God in Jesus Christ. Force field faith. Use it. It's yours as a gift in Jesus Christ. Well, that will complete the message entitled Force Field Faith, part number 19 of the Genesis series. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions about these messages, you can always dial this phone number, 877-788-5371, 877-788-5371. That number is available at any time. Someone is standing by now to take your phone call. If you'd like to help this ministry with a financial contribution, thank you for doing that. The address here is Reaching Hearts International, 15300 Spencerville Court, Suite 201, Burtonsville, Maryland, 20866. That's 15300 Spencerville Court, Suite 201, Burtonsville, Maryland, 20866. Thanks for listening. And as always, we want you to know that we pray that God is reaching your heart. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.